You're listening to The Cutting Edge, presented by Hilleberg the Tentmaker. Hi, I'm Petra Hilleberg, President and CEO of Hilleberg the Tentmaker. My dad, Bo Hilleberg, a lifelong outdoorsman, founded Hilleberg 50 years ago, and we've been family-owned, family-operated, and European-made ever since. We proudly specialize in building strong, lightweight tents and in never compromising on quality of materials or construction. Our tents have been specifically chosen by polar expeditions, mountaineers, backpackers, and avid outdoor adventurers just like you all over the world. We build tents for everyone's adventure. Additional support is provided by Loa Boots, crafting premium footwear for the mountains and beyond since 1923. And by Polar Tech, bringing you the science of fabric. And Gnarly Nutrition, fueling, educating, and inspiring athletes at all levels. Hello, this is Dougal McDonald, editor of the American Alpine Journal. We have two first-time guests on The Cutting Edge, Vince Anderson and Josh Wharton, two of America's strongest alpinists. Vince is a mountain guide who is probably best known for his alpine-style new route up the RuPaul face of Nanga Parbat, climbed with Steve House in 2005. Josh is a sort of quiet crusher, highly skilled in all forms of climbing. Years ago, I wrote a news story for Climbing.com reporting on Josh doing an M10 mixed route, a V10 boulder, and a 513 rock route, all in a single week. I'll bet he's done a lot harder versions since. Longtime readers will recall seeing a cool photo of Josh on the cover of the 2005 AHA, leading a crux pitch on an enormous alpine-style new route up Great Trango Tower. Both men live in Colorado, and it's a real pleasure to welcome them to the show. AAJ assistant editor Michael Levy spoke with them about their big new climb on Yerushanka in Peru, completed in late July. Michael will introduce the specifics of their climb, so I'm going to take the rest of this intro to say a little about the other big new climb on Yerushanka this summer. Canadians Alec Berg and Quentin Roberts put up a completely independent route on the left side of Yerushanka's south face. Roberts described their route as a line full of question marks, with complex snow, massive cornices, wild ice mushrooms, and a very steep headwall at 6,000 meters. Amazingly, the two separate parties met on top of Yerushanka, probably only the fourth and fifth teams ever to summit this very difficult mountain from this side. We'd love to have spoken with Quentin and Alec for this episode, but it would have ended up being like a two-hour show. However, you will get to hear Vince and Josh share some of their impressions of the Canadian's very challenging climb. Now here's Vince Anderson and Josh Wharton speaking with Michael Levy about one month after their climb. Enjoy. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Cutting Edge. I'm Michael Levy, and today I have Josh Wharton and Vince Anderson with me. They recently completed a monster climb in Peru on the 20,100-foot Yerushanka. It's in the Cordillera Huayhuash, and just to give you an idea of what the route involves, there's 513 rock climbing, WI6 ice climbing, and M7 mix climbing at altitude. So I'm very eager to hear more. Josh and Vince, thanks so much for joining me today. Really pleasure to have you. Yeah, thanks for having us on. Thanks for asking. So you guys have been back a few weeks already at this point, right? 
Yeah, more or less. Um, getting close to uh, close to three weeks, I suppose, almost four. It was at the in the second half of July. Was your trip? Is that right? Yeah, I was there for almost all of July, and Vince was there for the second half of July. Mostly. Cool. So the Cordillera Huayhuash, the tallest peak in the range, is Sula Grande, made famous by Joe Simpson's epic and touching the void. But can you guys orient us a bit here? Is the Huayhuash a, a sub-range of the Cordillera Blanca? Is it a different character in the mountains down there? What, what are we dealing with? It's a little south of the area where most people go climbing in the Cordillera Blanca, so it's kind of a sub-mountain range, a bit closer to Lima as the crow flies. And yeah, it's kind of known for having slightly worse weather than the Blanca. I would say that distinguishes it a little bit. So Yurishanka, I've read that it translates to Hummingbird Peak. It's 20,100 feet. I saw it also called the Matterhorn of the Andes. In pictures, that seems Seems like it captures the aesthetic beauty, but based on your guys' climb and other climbs on there, it doesn't seem to necessarily capture the difficulty. So what's special about this peak? What drew you guys to it? Well, I'll let Josh take that. He's the one that first discovered and idealized climbing it. Yeah, I guess I went there first in 2015. Um, I was looking for something that was technically challenging but didn't require kind of all the hoop jumping and money that going to asia requires you know for a trip to pakistan mm-hmm. or or china or india or something so that's kind of how i wound up there i was a new dad in 2015 and and looking for something similar to a himalayan challenge but without without the hiccups of getting there and so went to this peak yershanka on a whim and was just blown away thought it was amazing and was climbing with a couple of czech guys on that trip and actually got pretty high on the mountain um, although we didn't free climb sections of it and i sort of realized that it would be a really cool free climbing challenge kind of a unique free climbing challenge in the sense that it was relatively high and you know had all the alpine challenges but also pretty difficult climbing in every technical genre you know like mixed and ice and rock and so that kind of attracted me to it and so, um, yeah, I went back again in 2018 with Steve House and Mikey Schaefer. Weather was terrible, so we barely even climbed on the mountain. And then uh, Vince and I went on 2019 and got pretty close again, even closer than I'd gotten in 2015. And then, um, you know, obviously the pandemic put a pause button on go- travel. So then uh, finally went back this year again. Yurishanka has an interesting history. It was first climbed in 1957. It was the last peak in the Cordillera Huayhuash to be climbed. It was done by Tony Egger of Cerro Infamy. The last of the 6,000-meter peaks in, in, in the entire um, country of Peru. It was the yes, fi- last 6,000-meter yes. peak. Yeah. So it was, it, was a big, it was a big prize still, but it seems like it doesn't get climbed much at all these days. I read that it hasn't been climbed since 2003 before before you guys got up there. Why do you think it's it's not getting more attention? Or if it is, why is no one getting up it? <laughs> well, um, I I think a lot of it has to do with just the, the problems, especially near the top, where it's it's not. I mean, the the difficulty of the climb, and and I think a lot of people seem to think it's pretty wild because of these these high high difficulty numbers, but. And, and, and while the, that, that was certainly the technical difficulties, there was 
a lot of other difficulty higher up that's not really reflected in, in that that grading system with weird insecure snow steep snow or climbing under these these cornices and, and navigating some um, otherwise really challenging snow covered narrow ridge line and i think that last section getting near the summit it's it's well guarded because of that and I mean, it, it's hard to, to, to complete because of that aspect of it, where some of these other larger peaks may have difficult bits here and there. But once you kind of get towards the summit ridge, it's, it's just cruise on up to tag the summit and, and you're back. And that, that's probably one of the main reasons that it hasn't been climbed in, in a while, just that final bit. It certainly had its fair bit of attention. And, and maybe because it's got this difficult climbing down low for a lot of people, that's really all they, they've wanted to go there. They want to go do that. The more fun climbing, and then <laughs> they get up to the upper part, and they well, that was good enough. Yeah, that's my take. Yeah, that makes sense. And it's a little less in the limelight. I mean, to be perfectly honest, I I've been a lifelong climber and really big fan of high mountains, and and I hadn't heard. I mean, I may have heard some oblique references to it before um josh started going down there but not really so it certainly wasn't getting on my radar like something like latok or the ogre there's certainly peaks and places out there that just for whatever reason make it into the alpine climbing uh talking circles a little more frequently the line you guys followed is an old aid line that was put up by an italian team in 2003 can you Tell me a bit more about the line and Josh, how you ended up first trying it with the, your Czech partners in 2015. Yeah, it's sort of just the most obvious line on the southeast face. I think that is inconsistent. Like some of the ice lines that have been done in the southeast face have melted out recently, so it's kind of the most obvious way to get up the southeast face that's objectively safe. I think, and uh, it was kind of a, I mean, I will say controversial, but. Like as Vince said, it's not really a, a well-known popular mountain, but um, the Italian guys who established this route up to the ridge used a power drill. And this was in 2003. And that same year, some other guys from England put up a route called Fear and Loathing that was kind of a bold route that, that went up a pretty objectively hazardous part of the mountain on the left side of the southeast face. So there's a bit of controversy at the time, you know, of these two like competing styles and routes. But the interesting thing about the Italians using a power drill and putting in a number of bolts or rivets is that in the the thinner sections of the wall, they left basically bolt ladders or bits of bolts, and that allowed free climbing to be possible because these like what would be unprotected sections were actually reasonably protected. So that was kind of like lent, lent itself to being a good free climbing objective as well. And the Italian line, as you kind of alluded to, Vince, with some other teams they they stopped at the northeast ridge didn't go all the way to the summit right yeah i know they did not make it to the summit where exactly they may have stopped it's it's we were hard pressed to find that information their fixed anchors end at a certain point on the ridge but above that you know you, they certainly could have climbed a bit farther and, and left anchors in the ice that are now long gone so josh you on that first trip you saw that it kind of had this free climbing potential because of all those bolts the italians left but you didn't manage to free at all the the bottom rock section on that first trip right no i didn't manage to free well i 
top roped free that first pitch, uh, the first hard 13A pitch, but I didn't manage to lead it that trip. It kind of gets wet depending on the conditions. So, um, also didn't manage to free climb the ice roofs higher on the mountain. So, yeah, I had to figure out a way to get through those. And Vince and I figured that out in 2019. Although those had changed by the time we were back this year, so much so that we had to go a different way through one of the ice roofs oh, wow. just because the ice is receding so quickly there. So that's, that part of the mountain's changing so rapidly. We're sort of like doing some route finding on the fly. And just real quick, you guys have done a fair bit of climbing together before, I assume, before no. that? <laughs> Not really. We've no. known each other for a while. And oddly enough, I think probably most of our interactions were through competitive ice climbing for worse or better. Um, in your I, I, yeah. um, I used to comp- I, I competed against Josh like one time, maybe, maybe twice. I remember. And then, and then I got out of that and started setting and then Josh the one in the, when you guys were head to head. Oh, Josh did. I, I, it was interesting. Cause I remember I hadn't heard of him or I had like, he was kind of this up and coming dude and I beat him in the, they had a prelim that year. And I was really psyched, like, cool, all right, you know, I'm I'm doing okay. But then I I, I miserably failed in the finals. Um, but nonetheless, you know, when I started setting the route there uh, for the competition in Uray, uh, Josh did really well and won a few times. And, um, you know, I got to know him through that. You know, you're always excited to see how people do on, on these things when you're if, – if you've ever had a chance to do that. So, yeah, that, that's – I think that's kind of more or less our most interactions – and then, you know, some random sport climbing. I don't know that we, we ever roped up for more than a single pitch before we got on jury. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think we had. No. And so f- 2019, you went back. Um, face was in better condition than 2018, it sounds like. And, yeah, tell me a little bit about the, the first time you guys tried it together and how it went. You want to answer that, Vince? Oh, uh, sure. Um the for me being there the first time i didn't have a whole lot to go by for what the expectations were and mikey and josh were both there it turned out Mike, mikey didn't end up climbing with us but they had plenty of anecdotes and stories and steve house is a good friend of mine and he had told me a bit about his experiences it's funny his his recounting of it kind of undersold some of the difficulties, at least in my recollection of how he presented it to me, um, was funny. I was expecting it to be a little bit more mild. Nonetheless, when we get there, the weather just wasn't cooperating. We'd have a clearish day and then this afternoon buildup that would maybe leave a little bit of snow on the wall, clear up a little bit. But with the free climbing objective, the um, the snow kept melting and putting a lot of water on this lower portion where the particularly where the crux was so we really didn't get on it at all or a try i don't believe until the day we finally decided to go which was after being in base camp for about two and a half weeks waiting 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 for weather and then waiting for uh the the, the wet spots to dry out and the conditions were once we did go were, were very good so that that uh my first try on it was what was good in that sense and and in honesty like physically i felt better then and i think that's due to a variety of factors maybe just being there longer and getting better acclimatized or 
being a bit younger um, than I am now. I, I notice those effects more more now than I than I used to. But nonetheless, uh, I think there there we we had great climbing, good good uh, success on these difficulties and got up quite high the, the i think a couple things that, that were negatives for us that may have uh, contributed to not making it were we didn't have the greatest of bivouacs and those were the first one were, was on this cave that we ended up using this year above the rock pitches and it's a really cool cave feature but it's not perfectly flat in there unless there's snow and we had heard from some other people who had been there before that they had this nice ledge and they put up a tent and when we got there there was it was just uneven rocks and we couldn't put up our tent and we had to lay in an awkward position on these really thin mattresses that both of them punctured so so not only did we not have a lay down situation but then it was uncomfortable and and, and colder from being on the ground so we didn't sleep great as a result of that and then obviously the the mattresses were punctured for the for the next bivouac which was better so i think though that 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 took a toll on some of our ability to be as recovered and the second bivouac we also slept in a little bit because i think just that whole deal we got a little later start mm-hmm. we had a little bit of uncertainty with some root finding about, over these roofs the ice roofs and and ended up losing some time here and there and when we arrived at what was our high point that year, which turns out was only for us this year, four, four pitches. And if you belayed every single bit of it, it would have been about, I guess, five, but it wasn't very far. It was hard to tell. Conditions were different, but we were close, but we were later in the day. And I remember Josh leading this pitch and going around the corner out of sight for a little while. And then, kind of came back and looked over at me and said, I guess we need to make sure we get back to see our families. <laughs> and I said, well, wow. yeah, like I'm, I, I concur. Like if that's at all in question, then, uh, then yeah, we need to do whatever that means. <laughs> you know, obviously he's joking. Right. Yeah. But, but the point was, is like, if we continue on, we couldn't guarantee that we wouldn't be out for the night. And if we had an unprepared bivouac, which we were not prepared for up there, you know, the night comes fast at the, around the equators when, it, you know, and the days are shorter all year round. They're not short, but they're, it's kind of 12 and 12 and, you know, there's no lingering dusk. It, sun falls and uh, at that altitude, especially the temperature plummets quite a bit from being very pleasant in the day to, really cold and we didn't want to risk an an unprepared bivouac up that high so made that decision that which was which was a hard decision to make it, it it's hard in now knowing like how close we really were but you know it paid play it, it it ended up working out for us we we had better information and about where to go we came better prepared for the bivouacs and even though for me at least not feeling as as physically prepared this year i i still we still did better. Yeah, it sounds like that was the, the safe, the safe decision. Yeah, and I bet it's a decision that either one of us would have made differently. I don't know, maybe even ten years before, 
or certainly more than that, uh, would have been a note like, yeah, I'm like let's just go for it. But yeah, I think it was a it was a conservative dad call, which I think was yeah. totally fine. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think it's good to have those sometimes, um, mm-hmm. and I like my toes too for rock climbing. So yeah. um, that was part of the issue. But yeah, people asked me after that trip, like, so why'd you guys turn around? I was like, ah, there's kind of a number of reasons. There wasn't really one deciding thing or one but um you probably know michael having climbed in peru yeah the nights are really cold and um on the top of jerry you kind of have to reverse some of the pitches like climb them in reverse on the way down so just even though i can't really just wrap them or yeah so even though it seems like you're close to the summit it's in terms of time it's going to be somewhat complicated so it looked like we were a few hours away from the top but you know, we're going to have to reclimb some of those pitches on the way back. And I was feeling pretty worked that at that moment, just dehydrated and hadn't slept well. And so, um, it felt like a, a good call at the time. Um, I didn't, it wasn't something I couldn't sleep with, you know, moving forward. So, so Josh, uh, in 2019, did you free all the rock pitches down low? I did. I think I top roped the the 13a pitch because it was wet we were sort of short on time as vince was saying because everything had been wet for so long so um i'd been up there previously with mikey schaefer was actually along on that trip as well but chose not to climb with us when we did actually go for the attempt but earlier in that trip i'd gone up with mikey and had free climbed that initial 13a pitch but then it was wet when when vince and i were up there so i think i top roped it but didn't actually lead it yeah, he hiked it this year no problem did you remember those moves pretty well, or did you just kind of sus? Because you just went up there, kind of hung draws, came down in your first go, made it look, you know, a little strenuous, but not not terrible. Um, I think I probably remembered it a little bit, and it just was dry this year, which helped a lot, right? So, what what altitude is the the crux pitch at ballpark? Do you think the base of the wall I measured was sixteen four? So we're only a hundred feet or so up from there, maybe sixteen five ish. So climbing on say the diamond, it's not pretty good training for that. You're a little bit higher, but not not crazy. Yeah. The the crux pitch is kind of technical and not overhanging and super steep. So I don't know if the elevation plays a huge role in that pitch. I found the first pitch, which is easier, maybe eleven D or twelve A, to be way more strenuous because it's it's kind of a for me uh at least the way i climbed it kind of a thuggish crack lie back thing i started breathing really hard on that pit like really getting out of breath and any rest i had i had to stop and wait for my breathing and heart rate to settle down but the crux pitch yeah it's definitely harder but it's slab and technical and so yeah you know you're kind of pulling hard on some little fingers, but a lot of it's like willing your feet to stick to little nubs and trying to balance or step up or keep your hips into the wall. And that was less aerobically taxing, I think, given the altitude. Is while we're on the topic of the rock sections, the Italians used a power drill, bolted a bunch of stuff down low on the hard stuff, and that made it good for free climbing. But is it I'm guessing it's not necessarily bolted like a normal sport climb. Like, are, are, is there big fall potential or are the good parts well protected or what? what's it like? Mm, I don't think it'll be a trade route. <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah, no, it's run out in places, but not, 
I have a sense that when they bolted it, probably what they did was climb up to a stance, put a bolt in, kind of hang, rest on the bolt, look ahead at where they were headed, and then kind of free climb to the next stance, put a bolt in, hang on it. So it's sort of, it's not bolted like a modern sport route, but it's it's not nutty either. The, the, the protection is sort of in the harder bits, relatively speaking, where you want it. And in between that, is there some decent traditional protection? Yeah, bits and pieces of trad gear. Uh, I mean, it's actually like fairly good climbing in places. There are some actually good pitches in the lower <laughs> wall, which is cool. Yeah, yeah, great climbing. It's good rock. Yeah, the rock is good. Like, I mean, really good rock. Yeah, if it was in in Europe, you know, and a bunch of people climbed it, it would clean into being a pretty nice ten pitch route. Which is saying, if it was in the U.S., it'd be like one of one of the best. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It seemed like the bolts that are there are more or less placed well, particularly where there's more difficult climbing, but they are older and I don't know that they're quarter inch, but they're whatever the metric equivalent to that is. I don't know what that is. Yeah, I think they're I think they're eight mils, eight millimeters or something. They're they're little narrow bolts and, and I don't know how deep they are in the wall, but, you know, on the crux pitch josh went up ahead of time and kind of backed up one of them which seemed wise and there's i think there's that one pitch that has rivets and so he used a rivet hanger and sure that's got some protection but it's not like you know you're gluing wave bolt on the limestone wall at your local crag so and then there's the you know the traditional protection in limestone can be good if it's really in a nice bottleneck for a cam but they don't hold in parallel cracks like they would in granite or even sandstone so it requires in my opinion a bit more a heads up a approach to rock climbing it backing up just a bit 2019 you guys made it pretty close but didn't quite get there did you always know you were going to come back again and then uh just got foiled for a couple years by the pandemic i think so i mean we came down i came down like bummed um kind of in myself you know i always i want to blame myself for a lot of these things but really wanted to uh have another shot at it i was thrilled at the climbing we had done and i think josh felt similarly because we ended up leaving the hall bag at the base of the wall and um these buckets that were these clear plastic waterproof buckets with with some gear like that was like yeah dude let's let's make we didn't make like a definite plan but i think we both were like let's come back i'll, I'll come back if you'll come back so in my mind we we had that idea so then you arrived in July this year, and what was it like getting to the base? How did conditions on the route look? How were you guys feeling? As soon as we arrived at the mountain, you could tell it was in really good shape. It was way drier than it had been previous years. There was less snow on the wall. It looked like the upper mountain had melted back a little bit. Assuming the weather was good, I thought that we would have a pretty good chance. You know, we had a lot of knowledge. I mean, I'd been near and hot or like close to the top twice so knew the route pretty well we knew all the details which helps you know what to pack and what to bring and so yeah i felt pretty optimistic about it if the weather was cooperated and uh some people will know there was another party on the route on the mountain excuse me not the same route on the mountain at the same time quentin roberts and alec berg were you guys sharing base camp together did you guys all meet up before you set off on your respective routes we did we didn't share exact i mean more like they were they were their base camp was 20 feet 30 feet from ours so yeah i mean we saw them and spoke with them 
pretty regularly and we were in contact with them and uh we had hired uh this uh jim woodman c of mountainweather.com to do some forecasting for us and and i've used him i think josh has too in the past to really have good success with trying to get a reliable weather forecasting and in a remote areas and so he was sharing with us that information and and these Quint and Alec were were kind of getting more like the uh, I think somebody on on like an app on their phone was getting it at back home and, and relaying it to them so they were pretty happy to to that we we could share that information with them and I think that kind of helped coordinate a little bit of when when was a good opportunity to to go for it so we that that has a little bit to do I suppose with the coincidence of it's all uh, ending up there at the top at the same time and then. So how many days did you plan for? We sort of knew that it would be three days up, more or less, and one day down. So that's kind of what we planned for. We maybe brought like a hint extra so that if we needed to go into that fourth day, we could. But the conditions cooperated really well, so that didn't wind up being the case. And we've already talked a good bit about the, the first rock section of the route, but did you just fire it all first try, Josh? Yeah, it all went well. Um, we kind of had we had prepared for that first 13A pitch to be wet. So um, when we first got there, we knew that there was some weather coming in the forecast. So I went up there and red pointed that pitch and got it out of the way. It's only on the second pitch. And then we fixed our ropes up those two pitches. And so then after that bit of bad weather, we could just start up the fixed lines for the first two pitches and not have to worry about red pointing that pitch had that out of the way and that kind of saved us some time too on that first day because we rolled into the bivy at the top of the rock wall a little bit earlier and got some extra rest um, and then vince kind of took over on the second day leading the ice um, gully that traverses over and gets you to the ridge yes yeah, so the the first bivy better than 2019 was it was it more comfortable you had inflated non-punctured mattresses i guess yeah the first bivy was awesome like one of the better high mountain bivvies i've ever had compared to one being so horrible especially the last time and it's interesting with these conditions the mountain overall uh or the rock face was drier than the last time i had been there however the snow on the ledge that this cave is part of was there was more of it so perhaps the the wet season i mean i know we were there in the winter so winter summer doesn't really matter there but their wet season i think is when they get all their snow and that must have produced for whatever reason more snow that accumulated on these ledges and in this cave there was a big pile of snow and it kind of some of it had melted into ice that took a bit of chopping maybe an hour but at with an hour of chopping it out to a flat surface made for a uh, somewhat of a triangular shaped platform in inside of a cave nice. so we had a first light tent and, and basically just had to squeeze one end of it uh so so it made a little bit more of a triangle shape but the the top end where uh, we laid shoulder to shoulder was was full width so, so not only were we're we're on a flat surface we're in a tent so and we're on snow so the the mattresses were were happy and it was warmer being in in not only you're protected from above by the roof of the rock and then also being inside the tent it was 
it was a really comfortable bivy there. Pretty cushy. Yeah, super nice. And so then what was the climbing like on the second day? Vince, you, you took over for that section? Yeah, the, it changes from this sort of big wall rock climbing adventure, which the first day is where, you know, you're at rock shoes and haul bags to more of a traditional uh, alpine climb type of style where we we, we we abandoned the haul bag and left pared down the, the rock climbing equipment to just what we would need so had, had a bit less of that stuff and then we both carry packs and, and climb in that that style we we climbed the entirety of the route by fixing uh rope and then having the second follow on a micro track and secondary ascension um type type system which had, on the first day made a lot of sense you could so the you know josh could haul the haul bag and then the second person could climb and then if the haul bag got stuck you know inevitably you'd, you'd be close to it enough to help free it up but then then once we started climbing with the packs we still use that system and then now it allowed the leader uh to take a break and get some water or food and that kind of thing and that second most of that terrain on that second day was more classical water ice climbing. So it went from, you know, the rock climbing, big wall rock climbing to uh, it felt a little bit like something you find in the Canadian Rockies because of the limestone walls that are right next to you. I don't know, maybe I mean, a little bit of like not really the sorcerer, certainly not like that, but it's in that kind of a feature where you're in a little bit of a narrow goalie with with limestone on either side of you i'm sure there's a better analogy than the sorcerer but it's something like in the ghost river of canada with with a bunch of steepish snow exposed traverses and and such uh and then kind of ending on the ridge that uh uh then i guess it would be the southeast ridge or buttress however you want to call it there where you you, you traverse a little bit further onto the face and I, and I believe it's probably around there that we start intersecting with the uh, 1957 routes. That's on right, Josh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and it becomes more of an alpine face for just low angled ice, snow, depending on the aspect you're on. If it's a runnel or you're in a little bit of neve snow, for for just a few pitches to 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 you get below these daunting ice roofs that are above there, and and that's where we uh, made our second bivouac. Yeah, I've seen. A picture of the second bivy um and it's pretty outrageous looking you guys are below this huge serac basically looking thing and it looks pretty pretty spacious though yeah 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 like a it, great bivy <laughs> yeah it was i think that that bivy, yeah it's it's really cool when that one um i think the first bivy we may have been we weren't tied in. No, we weren't. We weren't tied in. So you didn't need to be tied in in this one either. Uh, uh, you know, as long as you're not doing something stupid. But <laughs> but yeah, you know, you felt pretty safe under there. And I don't know that I'd call it a serac. I mean, maybe I don't. I'd have to ask a glaciologist because it's certainly not a a, a cleaving right. thing. But but it is a. It's like a big edge of the ice, and you can see the glacial ice there. So I, I mean, maybe it is a serac. But when I think of seracs, and camping under it like those two phrases shouldn't be in the same sentence for me right right but, you but um and my guess is that this may have been sort of a bergschrund feature at some mm-hmm. point in time and you know you look into bergschrunds and they kind of go in at this angle 
Yeah. And then, and then, but below that, the lower glacier kind of makes tracks it a little bit. So this one is just lacking that lower glacier. So my guess is that, that, that that's how the burn trends form. The lower glacier moves a little faster than the more stable headwall, and they get this crack develop, but it keeps accumulating, so it never gets too far apart. Well, in this case, I think the, uh, the glacier below it is gone, or or going away way mm-hmm. faster than the the, the headwall above it. So this Bergstrand type thing is just turned into a gigantic roof. Uh, and, and there is even to the point of the bedrocks exposed below it. So uh, these ice roofs, this is the first of at least a couple on the route, right? They look pretty wild, like pretty, pretty crazy terrain to be climbing way up there on, uh, a big peak in the middle of Peru. What, what was the, what is that feature like? Can you describe it a little bit for us? It's kind of bizarre climbing because I usually think of ice climbing as having, like if people ask me what the grade of an icer is, I say there are two grades. There's easy and scary. Those are the two (laughs) ice climbing grades. Um, But these features kind of break that, defy that rating system because the the gear is actually quite good because it's this really good glacial ice. So the screws are bomber, but it's steep, so it's pumpy. Um, you know, this year wound up climbing the first ice roof via kind of some dry tooling and some M7 terrain to some hanging icicles. But in the previous season, there'd been this kind of overhanging ramp feature, which was, um, that had climbed out that was super pumpy, but, um, really, really good gear. Like the ice crews were bomber. So it was kind of a bizarre type of climb, you know, where you had to swing, 10 times or 15 times to get a good stick but once you got a good stick you're like in there kind of but uh this year yeah i wound up doing some mixed climbing on the right side of the ice roof because the glacier had receded even more this ice roof feature had receded even more so there's a lot of chossy rock to get to the ice so Um, if it continues to recede i guess it will there one day you think it'll just be uh pure mixed climbing to get to surmount this little this little roof and i think at some point it will just become fully chossy rock climbing <laughs> on the top of the mountain in oh, the thing. I mean, we have one of the really interesting things in the last week or so uh vince and i got some photos um from a guy who runs a i think it's like a memorial club for tony egger but there's something through the austrian alpine club and so we got some photos from the the first ascent of that ridge in the late 50s and some landscapes and it's really wild to see. I mean, the first, that big ice roof we were talking about, you saw the photos from the Bibby, didn't even exist when Edgar and Youngmere climbed the route. Like, it was just a snow ridge. Wow. Yeah, that's how much the mountain, the glacier has receded. Um, and I think that's, you know, a big piece of why Yershank has been climbed so few times recently, um, because the mountain has changed so much. Uh, so I think... In some ways, it's probably easier, you know, probably the steep snow climbing is less steep and that's receded, but some of these steeper sections of the route are probably much harder or didn't even exist back in the, you know, the 50s, 60s, 70s, before climate change really started to take a toll. Um, So that's kind of a really interesting thing about, I think, climbing in Peru in general, um, and particularly on this mountain. Yeah, I thought the ice roofs were some of the most unique ice climbing formations I've ever been on. 
exactly because like you say your weight you're up really high and if you take a moment to look down you look down on these uh, plains and lakes below you which are just amazing views the climbing by itself would be the 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 closest thing i've i've done to that kind of stuff i remember going to these caves in austria at one point in time like 20 years ago uh where some of these other comp climbers were training and had you know like overhanging glacial ice to, to practice on so they're like that they're like wicked it's almost a moon board of ice <laughs> in in places of course you're looking for the easier out to the side and in addition to that you so you have the glacier ice which is a different density and different texture to water ice but above the roof because of the sun and snow melt you get these big icicles forming uh, pillars that are water ice and ultimately you know you'd have to find a place where maybe there's a little bit of a gap between some of the big icicles because none of them quite touched the ground we had hoped maybe there would be a pillar that touched the ground um it would but you can imagine as the as the overhang goes further out the it gets further away from the slope of the ground because of the slope below it uh nonetheless none of them did but the way we went through the two roofs that we climbed had little sections of these icicles we you could ultimately uh maybe stem on in some places get your axe in but it's it's an interesting change because you go from this really hard dense ice on the glacier to a, a more fracturable ice mm. on the water ice like you, you go wailing into that stuff and you might like snap the pillar and it was pretty cool to see josh like how he would change his technique a little bit on on this on that one m7 pitch in particular from, from the rock to to like getting it really set into the glacier ice and then into like this more delicate touch as he started tapping into these um big big overhanging icicles cool and m7 wi6 at that high i mean that that's got to be pretty tough for you guys winded after that one um i mean that pitch was challenging primarily because the gear was not super great and it's chossy rock right i pulled a pretty big block off of that pitch <laughs> um <laughs> And cleaning it up um, for future parties. I was definitely making Vince nervous. <laughs> he was giving me some tips. At one point, I told him to, like, Vince, I need to focus, be quiet. Because <laughs> um, I was, like, a little max. It was kind of interesting thing about that route, you know, is that there's actually, like, quite a lot of easy, just standard alpine terrain. But then there's these bits and pieces of steep, intense technical climbing, mm. um, which is kind of like an interesting psychological thing. Because oftentimes when you're climbing on steep technical mountains, you know, it's like fairly sustained. So you're sort of in it, but you kind of have to, on your Shanka, to, to free climb it anyway, it felt like you had to kind of like switch your mindset all of a sudden and to be able to sort of switch it on for a pitch here and there. Zero and to 60 be, kind of thing. Yeah. And then be cruising um, yeah. for the rest of the time, not trying too hard. So then between those two ice roofs, it was just kind of mellower again um you pull the first ice roof and you got some mellow ice slopes and then did a couple pitches a pitch and a half of yeah. rock climbing to maybe easy 510 and we could we saw some evidence in there of egger and young mare the austrians on um, there's some old pitons oh that's cool uh, and then uh yeah out a second ice roof climbed out a little bit differently than we had in the previous year kind of out a little short but steep roof 
um, versus I think in 2019, we'd climbed kind of a pillar on the right side of it. So, And then on the third day, you guys reached about where your high point was from 2019, and but it was earlier in the day. You guys were feeling good. Your mattresses, again, didn't have holes in them, better sleep. So never a question that you're just going to keep going up, yeah? Uh, I think there's always a question. Sure, uh, sure. Sorry, that was, that was too yeah, I, I mean, but, but that said, uh, I could tell Josh had a high level of motivation and confidence and i i trust him too so i was pretty i I was really i guess uh comforted by that so i i felt like we were in a very good position to to continue barring some unsurpassable barrier of difficulty or danger even though it it was it was earlier it wasn't a lot or it wasn't like the ideal but but it was like all right we can do this and the whole time up at least for me i kept looking at what it would be i in my mind what it would be like to come back this portion in the dark and it was funny i made a lot of mental notes that i completely missed on the way down when we came down i made a couple mistakes with the root mm-hmm. finding in the dark but on the way up i was getting more confidence that we would be able to to have a good shot at this and that think things might might go in our favor if if we continue on yeah, I think Vince is underselling a little bit too that he was not I mean his acclimatization had not been as great because he was planning on an Alaska trip that that didn't work out because of weather and wound up acclimatizing using a tent um at home in Grand oh, Junction. Wow. Yeah. And so um which I don't think is the same. <laughs> and so I don't think he was it feeling super great. So it was I think pretty badass, badass on his part. Like I was definitely at times wearing, okay, I hope Vince is feeling well enough to continue. And I definitely asked him a few times like, Hey man, how, how are you doing? You feel good enough. And, um, and he did a great job of just sucking it up, which you often have to do in alpine climbing situations. You know, that's part of the deal. Right. Um, and I, I think that's something that, um, is like undersold in today's climbing culture is that, you just have to be a bit tough up there and there's a lot more skills that go into doing a big alpine climb like this than just the big numbers that everybody's focused on. Like Vince, for instance, is really good at just living on a mountain. He's good at rolling into the bivy and do all the things at the end of a long day that you don't want to do, like get a nice tent platform going and melting snow to make water and, and just making yourself comfortable up there and staying healthy and checking in on everybody. And that's like sort of a lost art, I think some degree Um, yeah people want to climb technically hard things with big numbers but there's a there's a lot of process bits in there that add up to allow you to do that and that's one of Vince's skills that makes him an awesome partner on, on objectives like this after a break we'll hear about that crazy summit meeting on yirishanka and why josh thinks those two canadians might just be the best snow climbers in the world Loa Boots began as a village cobbler in Bavaria in 1923. Almost 100 years later, Loa is still based in that village and still building boots and shoes in Europe under the world's most stringent environmental and labor standards. From mountaineering and ice climbing boots to rock climbing shoes, hiking boots, and lightweight trail shoes, Loa is recognized worldwide for the uncompromising quality, fit, and comfort that make Loa Boots simply more. Harness, check. Chalk bag? Check. Grid fleece? Check. For over 30 years, climbers have checked their gear lists to make sure they packed Polartec. We love Polartec fabrics for their lightweight warmth, 
quick drying performance and ease of movement. Found in iconic apparel pieces of legendary outdoor players, PolarTech remains an essential piece of climbing equipment. You probably have one in your closet right now. Whether you wear your pullover or use it as a pillow, PolarTech helps bring a bit of comfort to the crag. PolarTech is the science of fabric. Born in Utah's Wasatch Mountains, Gnarly Nutrition is committed to fueling, educating, and inspiring athletes at all levels. Gnarly provides honest, effective, and great-tasting nutrition that is third-party tested. Gnarly's full line features science-backed products free of hormones, GMOs, proprietary blends, or anything artificial. Add Gnarly Nutrition to your training regime to help you send. Use code AAC20 for 20% off site-wide at GoGnarly.com. The final four to five pitches that you guys hadn't done in 2019, what were what were those like, and what was it like getting up to the, the summit on your fourth trip, Josh, your second, Vince? Come on, take um, yeah, yeah, sure. The uh, It ended up being much more straightforward and less difficult than it appeared at first. Uh, another thing that we benefited from was that we had some drone footage from some folks that flew a drone around the summit and and got like before we climbed and we had some uh, pretty good photographs of what the that upper terrain was going to look like and that was for me like unbelievable you know i've never seen anything like that before i mean i remember you know going to base camps with big um you know telescope type things and and that could help but you, you we couldn't have even if we had one of those we couldn't have seen this part of the mountain was kind of around obscured from our vantage and and that gave us quite a bit of uh you know psychological boost and knowledge of like what it what it looked like and then as it turned out when we arrived there there was a few options that uh, I really jumped out to Josh on the photograph. And when we arrived, he saw what ended up being the way we went. And then the the summit story is kind of funny, right? You guys weren't alone up there. Yeah, that was amazing. I mean, I got to the top and literally five minutes later, Alec popped over down into my right. Um, which you really, I mean, if you think about like the timing of that, it's pretty wild. They'd started up the, the mountain the day before us, but um, yeah, all for it to happen within five minutes is was kind of bizarre. And you got to think about too that, you know, Jiroshanka, at least from the south side, um, had been summited in the late 50s and then again in the 70s and then once in 2003. And the, so I think those are the only summits from that side of the mountain. So I think we were the fourth and fifth teams to get to the summit and for it to happen within a 10 minute period or whatever is pretty wild. Um, that was amazing. Yeah. I kept wondering, like, oh, I wonder how those they're doing and we haven't heard them. And, and part in the back of my mind, there was certainly this desire that they would have summited a little before us and started descending. And then we, you know, you'd have that knowledge, knowledge just like, ultimately that makes anything easier and like oh it goes and they're coming this way and we can just connect their dots but we never did hear them and i'm like all right well uh, who knows where they are how their trip turned out and like josh said he he went up to top and then as i'm coming up that uh section i look over and i see uh i saw alec I'm like no way and i 
I, I thought for a moment he had already, he and Josh had maybe had acknowledged each other, but I think I said, Hey, and he, he looked over like quite surprised, like no way. Wow. Another person. And, and so it all happened uh, in this, this unusual span of a few minutes. And I think you guys- they, they, and they came up from a, from the, they came up that summit pinnacle. If you look at it, it's, it's a narrow little spike of snow and and they came up from just the other side of it. And I think it's uh, I think they were very happy to see us because they were going to dis- you know their plan had always been to hopefully descend the same route we had climbed or potentially wrap off to the west um into the other side of the mountain because what they had climbed was like quite complicated snow climbing for the entire length of the route. So repelling it would be sort of a nightmare. So as soon as they saw us, I think it was a huge relief for them because it meant that they would have anchors going down and some idea tracks and all of those things um, to find their way down. Because obviously, like finding your way down on a cornice complicated ridge. I mean, Vince and I managed to mess it up a bunch of times having just climbed up it. Right. Um, so, uh, yeah, it was super useful. So did them. you guys descend? together separately a little bit of both or? we started to descend together at first um but they chose to bivy uh, a bit closer to the summit our bivy gear was maybe 10 or 12 pitches down or something so we had to wrap wrap down to that to bivy but they they stayed in a ledge just a few pitches below the summit but that mm-hmm. was actually for me one of the more trying bits of the route was the rappel to the bivy that night um I was pretty tired after a long day and we kept kind of, it was kind of a funny circumstance where Vince started to lead the rappels. It seemed like he was messing up the route finding. So I did one of those like, okay, I'll do the lead the rappels. And then I immediately messed up the route finding. Um, <laughs> and so we were just blowing it and uh, had a like rope that seemed to be getting all knotted all the time, an older tagline. And, uh, one of the ice roofs, I had one of the worst like clusterfuck experiences of my life where dropped the tagline and the lead line down over the big ice roof and peered over with my headlamp and could see that um, there was a big knot in the rope that I needed to untangle because it's a free hanging rappel off of the ice roof. So I didn't want to have to try to untangle that big, big cluster in the middle of a free hanging rappel. But then as I tried to pull the rope up, it kept getting caught in all the icicles on the lip of the roof. So I probably spent a solid, I don't know, 45 minutes, you think, Vince, oh trying to deal with the ropes. It was um, a while, yeah. Yeah, and uh, it's kind of, you know, just stressed. And there were some expletives. Midnight. Yeah, there were some expletives. For, for, sure. for now. <laughs> <laughs> so after after that, though, that sounds like the, the first night of descent was awful, but the, the fourth day going down, everything went smoothly or any any snafus there? Yeah, I was smooth, smooth as silk. We'd done it before, and a lot, once we arrived down on the rock section, there were fixed anchors. So, yeah, it was pretty mellow. A few mm-hmm. few anchors we had to build right away out of the bivouac. And, uh, yeah, the primary stress nice of day. day four was just being nervous that we hadn't seen the Canadians yet, so we were just hoping oh, that man. they were yeah. finding their way down okay. Um because it is a bit, you know, it's a bit complicated, especially since of the traversing nature of the line. You know, you have to, you have to know where to go right or go left as you're wrapping. Um, otherwise, you could lead yourself into some really steep terrain that would be hard to get out of. So we were both a bit stressed, hoping that they would 
find their way. And I'd given them a tope, like a hand-drawn topo I'd made of the route beforehand to help them on down. And then, you know, obviously they had our tracks, but, but I'm sure they were worked after four days on the mountain. And, and, um, and so. we don't, we don't have Quinton or Alec here, obviously, but, um, as you guys were saying there, their route is a lot of alpine snow terrain. He's got these crazy mushrooms. Um, what, from what you guys know of their route, which is a new route, how does how does that look? It looks like it, it looked rowdy pretty... to me. Looks like yeah, it's funny. Like being from Canada, I I assumed they had gone up the Emperor Ridge of Mount Robson, mm-hmm. and which is this infamous gargoyled ridge line, and and felt like okay, what's the next step from there? <laughs> <laughs> which I don't I don't know. I haven't climbed either one of those, but. What their route looked like, it or the line that they ended up on, look, looked from the ground like it would be this steeper version of of that sort of gargoyle dollops of snow hanging on either side, uh, on a portion. Um, they didn't climb that from the from the bottom. They had some rock and mixed ground, but and then and then after that, which I, it sounds like that section, they had some pretty cool, unique climbing. They were able to find ways around it here and there, but it may have been time consuming, which a lot of times the snow i mean the difficulties are hard to really reflect i think it could be really time consuming they arrived on the the ridge proper that goes to the to the summit from i suppose that would be from the uh more of the western side that snow ridge to the summit also to me looked like that could potentially have been challenging just because the, the snow climbing that we had done previously and my other trips to peru was has often been, uh, you know, the snow can be of various quality. And, and, and so it looked to me like it, it was pretty mentally challenging and physically as well, mm-hmm. uh, for sure. And, and they, they had to climb, climb up a route with their bivouac equipment entirely. So they had, you know, we, we benefited from having nothing more or less small packs on our summit day and uh and then you know coming down into the un- they weren't they weren't sure where they're going down i thought that was pretty admirable that they just went for it and, and they had this idea to potentially go down more or less an unknown uh way and 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 come out so but i i thought their route looked looked pretty rad it looks like very much like a route to have climbed not one that you want to climb <laughs> <laughs> a lot of blue collar alpine terrain. I mean, I was telling Alec and Quentin when I saw when I saw him on the summit, I was like, "You guys must be the best snow climbers in the world right now in this moment," because <laughs> that's just a completely unpracticed skill, right? And right. Um, and uh, yeah, their route looked like nasty snow mushrooms basically for ninety percent of it. So yeah, with yeah. with two new routes in in one season um, after almost 20 years with not much attention you think your shanka might get a little more attention now do you think uh the rapidly changing conditions on the mountain will make any of these routes unclimbable or just change them significantly what, what do you think mm, i don't know i mean i think places always get when they get media attention they might have some more folks getting interested in them for whatever reason and and Yershanka is beautiful and challenging and logistically pretty simple to get to. So I could see more teams going there, but that's not to say that like a lot of, you know, that it hasn't gotten a steady stream of attention. I think every right. year I've been there, there have been other groups trying to climb the mountain. Um, so I, I think it's been, you know, 
relatively popular by alpine climbing standards co- compared to something obscure in, say, Pakistan. Um, right, just tough to, for, tough for to quite a long, Yeah, for quite a long time, just people um, not quite getting to the top. And it, like Vince said, I think some of that maybe was a bit of a, you know, end of the difficulties kind of thinking, which is we arrive at the ridge, which was climbed in the late 50s. Oh, it must not be a big deal to get to the top. Let's just call it right. here and bail. Uh, but it just happens to be a mountain where that's not the case anymore. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I don't know. I could see it getting a little more attention. There's definitely some some more lines to do on it. I think uh, free climbing the Japanese route would be pretty interesting because the Japanese route was done in the mid-70s and basically consists of a huge bolt ladder, um, <laughs> similar bolts, which are basically these conical pitons that were used on Saratore. Um, at the same time in the compressor route um, in the 70s. And so I've been on a little bit of the Japanese route with with Mikey and Steve in 2018, and, and there's tons of bolts running up this overhanging prow. It has potential as a cool free climbing objective. Nice. Uh, um, so, yeah, I could, see, I could see somebody getting interested in it. Cool. Well, Josh and Vince, thanks for sharing all about this climb on Yurishanka. It's epic sounding. It's epic looking and uh, thanks again for joining us on the Cutting Edge podcast. Thank you, Michael. Yeah, thanks for having us. That old Italian line that Josh and Vince completed was called Suerte, Spanish for luck. Thanks to Josh, Vince, and Michael for sharing this story. This is the 50th episode of the Cutting Edge podcast, and for almost all of them, Hilleberg the Tentmaker has been our presenting sponsor. We're so grateful to Hilleberg for helping to keep these interviews coming. We also get support from Loa Boots, PolarTech, and Gnarly Nutrition. And of course, from the American Alpine Club. If you like this show, consider joining the AAC. In addition to the annual American Alpine Journal, you can get rescue and medical benefits and substantial gear discounts. And you'll support the AAC's policy work and many other programs. Learn more at AmericanAlpineClub.org. Until next time, this is Dougal McDonald wishing you happy climbs.